So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. God has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not to fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Let's, let's just pray. Father, teach us through your Holy Spirit, I pray this morning. And guide my words that they would be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as you look up here, we're going to look at worship this morning. Worship. I think it's probably one of the most abused words in religion. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. But first, I want you to imagine that... um, Maybe you're at Creation Fest or you're at, uh, at a, an amazing Christian concert. Let's say it's uh, All Sons and Daughters or it's Passion or David Crowder or Chris Tomlin or um, your favorite musical artist. And uh, there's hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people. And uh, the, the music is amazing. Everyone's caught up in the music and uh, feeling just the, uh, the emotion of the moment. Hands are raised. Hearts are overflowing. Um, hearts are full. Uh, it's a wonderful time. Um, one of my favorite artists... Phillips, Craig, and Dean. You have to be probably old to know them. Um, Cindy and I went to one of their concerts about a year ago. It was just with hundreds of people. Wonderful time. But I want want us to think, in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that music and, and what's going on, is that worship? I want you to just think for a second. Is that worship? And I think the answer might be, it could be. Or it might not be. Now, now switch gears, totally different, and imagine yourself in the shipyard. Um, 
doing welding or engineering. Or let's imagine you on the outs doing plumbing or teaching or making a latte or caring for your children at home. Is that worship? Could be. Um, we had a wonderful time earlier singing. You know, often that's called what? It's called worship. Was it? Often we call the people who are, are up front a worship team. Often we call what we're doing right here a worship service. Is that what is happening? Um, what does it mean to worship God? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes, this word worship. Again, I'd say, I think maybe one of the most abused or misunderstood words in Christianity. Something that I think we've often reduced to a time or an event or an emotion. Instead of, listen to what Paul says in, in Romans 12, 1, as we're just kind of trying to understand what we're going to be talking about this morning. Romans 12, 1, Paul says this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and that's in view of what he just wrote about in chapters 1 through 11. I mean, the incredible story of, I mean, in light of us being sinners, God's mercy towards us and he, he, these truths about justification and, and sanctification and, and God's sovereign grace saving us in view of all of those amazing truths. And if you don't know them, go home and read Romans 1 to 11. Good, ver good chapters. In view of that amazing grace and mercy of God, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. That's worship. Offering our body in light of God's mercy, in light of who God is, in light of what God has done and who God is, in light of that, offer ourselves to God. Offer our whole beings to God, our bodies, our souls, our spirit, our time, our money. Offer ourselves to God because he is worthy. And that's worship. God is worthy of us, of every part of us, of every part of our being. Um, one of my favorite worship choruses, one of my favorite choruses is Thou Art Worthy. Thou Art Worthy. Thou Art Worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power. For thou hast created, hast all things created. Thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are created. <clears throat> thou art worthy, O Lord. And certainly God as creator is worthy of our worship. That's what worship is. It's attributing worth to God. Have you heard this song? I worship you, 
it's hard for me to just say it. I feel like singing it. I worship you. I worship you with all that is within me. I worship you. For you are the great, most wonderful God, worthy of glory, reverence, and awe. O Lord, I worship you. O Lord, I worship you. Are our lives such lives of worship? Such an expression of God's worth? Does our worship include not just moments like singing this morning or being in the midst of just a beautiful worship time? Is our worship, is our expressing God's worth something that permeates our lives and our relationships? Or... Is our worship, quote-unquote worship, merely an expression of how we are momentarily feeling versus who God really is? Think about that. And I know we might chafe against that, but think about it. When When we think we're worshiping, is it really expressing how worthy God is, or is it merely a momentary emotional experience? That was a great worship time. Were we we talking about making a latte? Or teaching our students? Or repairing an electrical circuit? Or singing some songs? (laughs) That was a great worship time. So is our worship, as, we, as we're going to turn here to Ecclesiastes, is our worship us-centered or is it God-centered? Is it expressing God's worth or is it merely expressing how we feel at a certain time? And so we're going to talk about what keeps us from being true worshipers of God as we look here at Ecclesiastes. And, and, and I just want to say at the beginning, that I'm not disparaging what we call worship times. (laughs) I love them. I'm not disparaging that at all. I mean, I earlier as we were singing, that that was a wonderful time. But what I want us to, to see is that's what God, as we're acknowledging and expressing and his, and and communicating his worth, whether it's in words or whether it's in actions or in service or in work or whatever it is, that's what, that's what worship is to be, not just a moment on Sundays, but throughout our weeks. And, and what is it that keeps us from being such worshipers? So Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 and as I was sharing with Daniel a, a couple of days ago, this isn't a passage I would have picked to talk about worship. But as I, as I studied it, I realized how, how much it does really talk to us about worship. So three things we're going to see in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7. First, we talk too much. 
Second, we promise too quickly. And third, we categorize God. Okay? We talk too much, we promise too quickly, and we categorize God. And I think those things hinder us from being the worshipers of God. Let's let's just go through Ecclesiastes 5, the first three verses here again quickly. Notice it says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. So the context here is going into the house of God, which signifies God's presence, the presence of God. So when you... We could say when you, when you enter God's presence, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Don't, don't go in talking so much that, that you don't hear God. And consequently, you don't even know what God is saying or what God is wanting of you. Don't be quick, and we're going to see a great, great illustration of this pretty soon. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Now, now the, just a, an amazing illustration of this is in Mark chapter 9. And this is a really familiar passage, but I, I just want us to get this. It, it's incredibly, um, it, it's amazing. Notice, this is, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were there all alone with Jesus. What, a, what an incredible opportunity. And as they're there, Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. Can you imagine that? I mean, just you and two of your friends all by yourselves with Jesus and and Elijah and Moses show up and Jesus is just, he's turned dazzling white. You can't hardly look at him. He's been transfigured into a glimpse of who he really is, God himself. And and there he is talking with Elijah and Moses. And Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Those are pretty deep words. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I I love the parentheses because the parentheses says... He did not know what to say. <laughs> they were so frightened, so he, he said something. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Be quiet. Literally, that's not what it says. It says, listen to him. I mean, it's, all, it's, like, it's like somewhere between hilarious and painful. I mean, here he is in the presence of Jesus, transfigured and in all of his glory and, and conversing with Elijah and Moses and an opportunity to listen to what they're talking about and just be dazzled by the presence of Jesus and he feels he has to say something. But, you know, I think, I think what it's talking about in Ecclesiastes is that's us. 
we're so busy so often talking about God that we don't have time to listen to God. And as a result, our lives end up reflecting us instead of God. As I was trying to to make this kind of relevant to, to today, I was thinking it was it's like me being in a room or, or us being in a room together and we're talking about software programming, which I don't have a clue about. Dave Kaiser does. And and here we are, we're we're talking in our ignorance about software programming, which often, you know, we do in conversations, we just like to talk. And and, and standing right here is Bill Gates. Or Dave Kaiser. And and we're not even really paying attention to him as we're talking about software programming because we're just, you know, we're we're all airing our ignorance or our opinions. Um, would be more polite, probably. And never even thinking to, to ask Dave Kaiser about software programming. What would that say that we think about his worth? To be talking about software programming and not ask his opinion. It's like being in the presence of a plumber and and you know, and, and we're trying to figure out a plumbing problem and we don't acknowledge the worth of the plumber in our presence by asking his opinion. You know where is God's house today? It's us, right? That's what the Bible says. We're the we're the dwelling of God and and his presence is where we are, those of us that are his children. And, and the question is, as, as we look at this, is are we living in such a conscious awareness of God that our lives reflect what we think of him and his worth? Do we realize that where we go as believers, we take the presence of God with us. We are in God's presence. Are we aware of the fact that we live in his presence and that he is with us and that we can listen and we can learn from the God of the universe, the creator God of the universe, and demonstrate what we think of his worth by reflecting him wherever we go. I think the point is we must if we want to be worshipers of God we must live in conscious awareness of God's presence if we're going to reflect his worth wherever we are wherever we are whatever we're doing the second thing look at verse 4 it says when you make a vow to God do not delay to fulfill it God has no pleasure in fools Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not to fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Don't protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Oops, I didn't mean to say that. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? We promise too quickly. And I think what we see here is we are led, this is the problem. 
we're led by our passing emotions instead of by the presence of God that we're living in. You know, since I'm picking on Peter this morning, I'm just going to give you another, another illustration of Peter, how he, he really illustrates this really well for us. In Mark chapter 14, verses 29 through 31, Jesus is with his disciples just before he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, be betrayed, be crucified. And Jesus says, well, Peter says in verse 29, if everyone falls away, I won't. It's like a vow. Jesus says, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And we know the end of that story. With a, with a vow, he denies Jesus just a little bit later. So often we're, we're led by the, the emotions of the moment, our passing emotions, rather than the presence of Jesus that we're to be dwelling in. Do our lives reflect our emotional state or God's worth? An, an emotional event that we're caught up in that, ah, this is worship? Is it worship? Or is it an emotional state that we're caught in it, up in at the time? Or is it an expression of God's worth? Let me think about, think about the the promises that we often make. God, I'm, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to talk to every person I meet about Jesus. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to... I'm going to... And so often our promises only reflect our own fickleness and not God's worthiness. And I think the point of Ecclesiastes here and, and, and what the writer is saying is don't be governed by your passing emotions if we would truly please God and reflect his worth. So the question is how can we how can we be people that that live in God's presence, that, that are quiet in his presence, that, that that are still and know that he is God and, and just aren't dominated by our emotions, but dominated by God's presence. Look at verse 7. We come to the end here. It says, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Fear God. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Fear God. And this is where I said, I think the third thing is that we learn is we categorize God. And I think the way we categorize God, at least one, a couple of the categories that are mentioned here in Ecclesiastes 5.7 is we categorize him according to events and information. Events and information. Uh, we call this a worship time. 
or we call it worship singing or a worship team or or worship songs we we categorize um, and we make God events and emotions or we make God information many much dreaming and many words are meaningless if we reduce God to those things I, what is he saying um I think he's saying that we must be people that are dominated by God's presence, not by emotions, not by events, but by God. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at suffering and, and how the, the book of Ecclesiastes ends. The book of Ecclesiastes ends with fear God, and I talked about that, and I just want to... Come back to that briefly because that's how this ends. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Fear God. What does that mean? I think it means, and, and I'm just going to read this, it means that as much as an arachnophobic is dominated by the awareness of spiders, okay? And if you're an arachnophobic, just saying that probably made you uncomfortable. And you're wondering if one's under your chair right now. I just said that for Susie because I could tell she was uncomfortable. <laughs> Sorry. And that didn't help anything. Um, if you're an agoraphobic, you're dominated by the awareness of people in public places. It's just making you feel like uncomfortable. If you're an acrophobic, that's not an acrobatic, but it's similar because an acrobatic is somebody that, you know, does their thing up high. And acrophobic is someone who's afraid of heights. And if if you're on the on a mountain or on a cliff, it's just it dominates everything about you, doesn't it? Your senses, your your emotions, your conduct, your speech, your actions, you just you're it dominates you. And I think that's exactly what, again, Solomon is saying here, is in the same way, so must the fear of God, and we'll call this theophobic, theophobia, theos for God. I like that. You like that? <laughs> theophobia. You can remember that? That we would be so theophobic, so God-dominated, so captured by who God is, by his love, that when we're surrounded by unloveliness, we would love. We're so dominated by his grace that we show his grace when somebody doesn't deserve it. We're so dominated by righteousness that, we, that we're just uncomfortable when we're in an unrighteous situation, watching an unrighteous movie, or we're in an unrighteous situation. We're so dominated by God's holiness that that we're in an unholy situation. We don't like it. We're so dominated by God's mercy that we have to show mercy to someone who's in need. We're so dominated by the presence of God that we live in and that we're aware of 
not affected by our feelings that go up and down. I'm, I'm the same as anybody else. My feelings are up and down. If you know, the businesses have a good day, I'm great. If the businesses have a bad day, I'm not great. If, <laughs> but we're so dominated not by our passing emotions, but by the presence of God and who he is. that that overflows to the people that we're around. And just think what that does to, to showing what we think of God and his worth, who he is. That's worship. Whether we're fixing a sink or whether we're putting up a, a house or teaching some kids or caring for our kids or... Whatever we're doing, that's worship. If in the midst of wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we're so dominated by God's presence that if it's a cranky customer, we show them mercy. If we're surrounded by, by profane speech, we're holy. That wherever we are and whoever we're surrounded with, no matter what's going on, it's God's presence that dominates us and is reflected by our speech and our conduct. That's worship. I think we see, just in in closing here, just a a great example. I just want to mention it in Isaiah chapter 6. As Isaiah is surrounded by a sinful people, the people of Israel, and if you look at, if you'd read Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, I mean, they're just doing anything they want. They're just totally sinning against God and, and disobeying and, and profaning God. And, and Isaiah doesn't want really anything to do with it. And God is calling him to be a prophet to these people, a spokesman for God to these people. But, but Isaiah, he... He doesn't want anything to do with it. It, it, The thought, I think, scares him to death. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, we read this. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, those are angels, with with six wings, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they covered their faces, and, and with two wings they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, in the midst of God's presence, as he's never seen or experienced before, he says... Oh my goodness, woe, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts for the first time. It's like I've seen God and I've seen myself. And then one of the angels flew to him with a coal in his hand from the altar and he touched Isaiah's mouth and he said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And it's like in that moment, Isaiah saw God. He saw, him, saw, him, saw God as holy. He saw, saw himself as a sinner. And he saw God's provision for his sin in a picture of Jesus. 
and he, and he saw in God's presence who God was, his worthiness, his holiness, and his grace, and his mercy. He saw God, and God says, so now who, who shall I send, and, and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds by saying, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And I think if we really grab a hold of God's worth, we see him and we see ourselves and we, we see who he is for us. The holy, righteous God, but the gracious and merciful and loving God. We see who he is and his worth and it grabs us. Then we will be people that wherever we are, whatever we're doing every day of the week are going to be people who want to reflect that worth wherever we are. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise because you are God. You are our creator. You are our redeemer. You are our God. Oh God, help us to live in your presence, to be still and know that you're God. (laughs) And to live our lives as an expression of your worth to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.